welcome our in-studio and viewers from around the globe. Today we are here with Talisa Yancey for a fireside chat. It's great to have you here, Talisa. It's great to be here with you all. Fantastic. Um, during our time together today, we are going to talk about your origin story, your leadership journey, mentors, mentees, and we're even going to take a glimpse into the future of humanity. So let me do a proper introduction of Talisa. Uh, Talisa was named president of American Family Direct in July 2021, so pretty recent, where she oversees the direct consumer companies HomeSite, The General, and Connect. Hopefully we'll hear about all of those today. Sure. Previously, Talisa served as COO of American Family's agency business since 2019 with primary accountability for the personal, commercial, and lifelines of business. She joined American Family in 2009 as advertising director and was promoted to VP of Marketing in 2013 and CMO in 2016. Prior to joining American Family, she served in leadership positions at several companies, including Ford Motor and Burger King. Talisa is a graduate of the University of Illinois and earned an MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg Graduate School of Business. She, is, she currently serves on the board of NPR. You're married to a jazz saxophonist. You have a young son, yep. and we're gonna talk about all of that today. Yep, awesome, thank you. Yeah. It's hard to listen to your own <laughs> Your own story. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's a kind of a, a, a nice segue because, you know, we're going to talk a lot about your journey, you know, how you've arrived at where you are, you know, your, your leadership principles. But I do want to start by rewinding to the origin story. You know, lots of things happened early in life that have allowed you to accomplish all that you've accomplished, and it's an incredible uh, background. Can you take us on that journey of the early years of Talisa Yancey and how you think that propelled you to the president of American Family? Sure. And I think it's really hard to see where you'll end up looking forward, but looking backwards, a lot of things make a lot of sense. <laughs> um, I can't really start my origin story without first acknowledging the sheer luck of being born into the family I was born into. I have a solid uh, family structure, and I don't just mean my mom and my dad, but my grandparents and cousins and aunties and play cousins and all kinds of other <laughs> things that are sort of traditional in what I would consider to be the African-American culture. My grandparents herald from a town called Sturgis, Mississippi. Wow. So I consider myself a Chicago girl with Mississippi roots. Mm. I spent every summer of my life before age 14 in Mississippi for the summer. And, and that was a lot different than growing up in Chicago. Mm. I remember when my grandmother on my father's side got running water <laughs> and when we didn't have to use the outhouses. And that all sounds really strange and, and somewhat foreign to us now. Um, but in reality, those things are as much of a shaper of who I became to be um, as, as much as my education or the schools you were selected into or the chance of some teacher taking a lot of interest in you. So um, my family's one belief on my, on my mom's side is that education is the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was whipper smart, mm -hmm. um, brilliant at math, used to race us in doing calculations. We'd have the calculator, she'd have her brain, and was never <laughs> allowed to go beyond the eighth grade um, because she grew up in a time in the South where a public school education was not guaranteed to African-Americans at that time. Um, she was offered an opportunity to go away to school, and her father um, 
preferred that the boy in the family mm. would go to that school because he had to provide for a family at some point. And so my grandmother continued to go to school, which was only to eighth grade, mm. up until she was well past married and had children, like into her 20s, because she valued education that much. Mm. And across her life, and she only died a few years ago, died at 97, wow. she was always talking to us about education and the value of working with your brain and being able to learn, to study, to learn from the folks that are beyond you. And that actually creates a foundation for curiosity, mm -hmm. which I think is a critical part of how you get to grow up on the south side of Chicago, go off to school, take a job with Ford, have an incredible time there, um, go to Burger King, and then end up in an insurance company, a place that I would never have imagined, but it has been the most exciting part of my career. And I think the place where my um, life and uh, vision and, and purpose and meaning for life actually came to fruition because the category is one that we don't know a lot about, mm -hmm. but it is decidedly committed to this notion that tomorrow is going to be better than today, and so somebody has to protect it. So I like to say that we're in the business of protecting dreams in this category. American Family specifically, I think, has done a phenomenal job of doing that because what we do is not necessarily just protect your stuff, but protect the continued pursuit of the, that dream. So between family and college, taking some risks sometimes, mm -hmm. being unsure of how you make a career decision at times. When I came to American Family, I was literally taking a step back in my wow. career. I was going down in my career. And not, lots of times we believe that we go continuously up, and that's not necessarily true, but that step down has opened up um, a great uh, career, and more than that, um, working for a company and with people who value diversity, who value the larger purpose of business, and who do meaningful work that I actually believe matters a great deal to the world. What a great choice it was. I mean, it's been 13 years. You said you're entering your 13th yes. year. So what an incredible choice. And a kind of good lesson for us that sometimes you may take one step back or one step to the left or right, but, it, but I mean, 13 years later, yeah. you're now the president of the, of the company. Um, so let's talk a bit about parenting. Sure. And, you know, while you're doing all of these amazing things, while you're leading a huge staff, and I don't even know the size of the staff, you can, you can tell us, um, you're also, uh, you know, raising a son. And we've had a couple of, of guests on the show over the last uh, few weeks, and they've talked about, you know, some of the trade-offs, right? And one guest said that she brought her mother in to live with her in order to help raise her two daughters, and that she needed to create what she calls an ecosystem of care or support yeah. in order to enable her to, to, to accomplish what she needs to accomplish. Another guest, we uh, were talking about balance and just the word balance, you know, uh, became very frustrating that that, that that can't exist. You know, and, uh, you know, for me, coming from a two-dad household, raising a young son, you know, it's, I, I see the ebbs and flows between career and, and, and parenting but I strive to create some kind of rhythm and harmony you know, yeah. in that space. So I'm curious, like in your situation, I mean, you, you have a huge staff of work, incredible responsibilities, a wonderful son, husband at home. How do you um, build your ecosystem of support? I have a mom at home, too. There just we go. Like, <laughs> just like whoever that was, uh -huh. because that is, I, for, for me, one of the pillars of, and I had my son later in life, so I think when you're, 
later, a little bit more established, a little bit more resources, you can be much more planful. But in my family, none of our children, so my mom has five children, and they have children, and my mom has two siblings, and, uh, and of those three people, there are 15 grandchildren. Wow. Um, in my segment of our family, none of our children, so none of our next generation down, have ever been um, raised by anybody outside of the family until a meaningful age. So my nieces and nephews were babysat by their grandmothers, and they all live in Chicago, though. So, But my mom moved in with us, too, uh, so that you could have that same sort of liberty to pursue both and to know that you're leaving your child in, in the safest arms possible because they, they sheltered you, they held you, they protected you. Now, what you don't know is that whatever they did to get you to where you are is not what they're going to do to get your child to where <laughs> he needs to be. Because he's got a little bit more freedom than yeah. I ever had in my life. And I'll come home and be like, what did you do with Grandma today? I watched TV. I was like, all day? <laughs> yeah, she let me have a cartoon marathon. I'm like, she didn't let me watch TV at all. <laughs> so, but anyway, so I, I think between your family, so I'm lucky enough to have my mom mm-hmm. be... Um, doing very well in her life. She's 76 years old. She looks like she's maybe 50. And, and you she, moved her in. I moved her in. She lives with us. Um, she's part of our ecosystem and our fabric. That combined, and I think COVID really helped this, combined with the set of other families that become your hive to some degree, where your child and their children are almost interchangeable. Mm-hmm. So one of my great friends is a doctor. Her husband is a CEO of a hospital group. And on occasion, they drop their kid off, kids off at our house. And on some occasions, they'll pick up my kid from school so that they have each other. And COVID really sort of solidified yeah. the importance of your village, whether they are, you're born into the vi- village or you create the village yourself. Mm-hmm. I think it takes an ecosystem to not only raise the child or in, a, in a healthy, meaningful way, but also to protect the family mm-hmm. in a healthy, meaningful way. I think we all crave human interaction as much as we crave achievement to some degree part of what we do in work is about the human interaction um, as as much as about the leadership and the work that you need to get done and and this ecosystem or this hive I would like to call it this nucleus of sort of the community that you build around you I think is just as important as the one that you're born into if you can't move all your family (laughs) to the one place if you could that would be good I would move my sisters and all of their children and (laughs) grandchildren all to the same place if I could. I love that. So multi-generational household, you have your mom providing uh, ecosystem of support. Uh, Having kids later in life can also give you a little bit more more, uh, support. And then, you know, the the village concept, this, you know, building a village of different nodes that, that, you know, allow you to to, to provide that support. Those are all good lessons for people to consider as they think about how um, you navigate both. And I'd like to add one other thing. I think COVID really, really taught us that we were underutilizing the human capital and the human capacity and heart of the people around you. So everybody can remember when we first went into COVID and everybody had kids at home, if you have children, that needed to be educated and schools that didn't really know what to do with Zoom. And so they sort of had a schedule and didn't really have a schedule. And in our ecosystem... 
we tried that at home for a bit. And then moms are running up and down stairs, dads are blowing in and out of those meetings. And we got together and said, what we're going to do is create our own school. And so we actually called, nice. we, we actually would go to one house mm-hmm. um, so that the kids had each other. So those long breaks between classes that every kid experienced, they could go outside and play. And then one parent who had the greatest flexibility could sort of manage these interactions between getting on Zoom, sitting down, getting back in class, getting off of Zoom. And I think that what I valued most, uh, one of the things I value most about uh, COVID, if there's anything, is that we, I think we understand the value of human connection better and the value of your friend network, your yeah. family network, the groups that you create so that you can perhaps get closer to whatever your version of balance is um, than we ever thought was possible before COVID. I love that, whatever your your version of of balance and and tapping into that broader community. I mean, we kind of had an awakening of, hey, maybe these, uh, the support systems were around us, but we hadn't activated them in the right way. So I want to talk about um, you and how you recharge. So you, you have a pretty, um, uh, I, I'm sure the, the, the stress gets heightened at times and recharging is fundamental, managing your energy, making sure that you can go the distance. You know, I talk sometimes about forest bathing. I like to go out in the middle of nature and, and, you know, breathe in the air and be around the water and, you know, on, on my bucket list um, has always been uh, Patagonia. And I'm taking my family this weekend nice. for a hike in, in, in Patagonia. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, what are those things that you have introduced over time into your life as I'm sure you've gotten more responsibility? I'm sure the, the uh, demands on your schedule have increased. So how do you practice self-care? Sure. Well, that's, if I can be so um, transparent as to say, I don't know that I have a formula for this yet because I'm learning into a a higher level of self-care, which I know we all need. So first off, forest bathing would not be good for me because I don't (laughs) like bugs. No bugs. On no day am I going to recharge myself by going into a forest. I could look at it. Um, But a beach is good for me. Sand is good for me. Sand between your toes. Sand between my toes is good for me. But, and, and I like concrete, generally speaking. I mm-hmm. think there's an energy to cities, so I think getting to places that you can find energy. I'm just returning from about a five-day period of recharge oh, nice. for myself. I, and I took myself, my family stayed at home, down to Charlotte for a conference. Um, it was a leadership summit, half um, faith-based, half um, marketplace-based, and just the capacity to be in a nice hotel room and then go to these sessions where you got to hear perspective from other people. And just to take a moment to breathe, I think, is a critical part of self-care. The other ones that I'm learning is the value of sleep. Mm-hmm. Is, um, I used to think that I, could, I was like a badge of honor. I only <laughs> sleep four hours a night. I only need four hours of sleep. That's not true anymore. And, and I can notice the difference in how I feel about how I'm able to be present and support the people I need to support and also myself if my sleep balance is good, if my exercise balance is good. So I think it's something that I am learning into, but nobody, I will never say no to a beach, an ocean, a nice view, or a massage. There we go. (laughs) And family. So normally when I, I've learned also to take the whole tribe with you Mm -hmm. when you go on a vacation because you still have your ecosystem intact. So 
during the COVID um, crisis, we were able to take most of my tribe, including the other family, we all went on vacation together so that, again, the kids still had each other, we still had each other, and we could be on a beach and do something different than, you know, running from house to house. So. That's great. We're going to come back to sleep in a minute. Yeah. We're going to talk okay. about that. So um, in, in your role, I'm sure over your career, you have mentored many people. Um, you have had without a doubt, amazing mentors. Mm -hmm. Can you talk some about some of those mentors you've had, some of the people you're currently mentoring, and any words of wisdom you have for anyone watching today on how they maximize, uh, you know, those mentor-mentee relationships? Sure. So the first thing I'll say is you're right. I've had amazing mentors from all walks of life, some in work, some out of work, people you just make a connection with on a plane and somehow stay in <laughs> touch with. Um, so I cannot actually even enter this conversation without paying homage to those folks who saw something in me and allowed me to enter into this, what I would call a mentorship relationship, is actually, it's a two-way relationship. Mm -hmm. So to some degree, they are uh, pouring into you and allowing you to learn from them, but they're also learning from you because we no longer live in a linear lifestyle. So you don't just learn and grow, you learn look back and grow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then some of what will fuel you for tomorrow will not be necessarily what you experience, but what you're able to learn from another generation, either before you or after, or after you. Mm -hmm. So my best mentors are people that I still talk to today. I talked to one of them on yesterday, and I met him on, before I even started my first job out of college. Oh, wow. He was one of the interview, interviewers who told me to calm down and take a breath. <laughs> he told me, you already have the job, so just relax. And sort of talked me into the first steps of understanding the difference you move through as you go from being a college student to future employee of uh, said company, which was Ford Motor Company. Still talk to him to this day and have talked to him on an ongoing basis since that time. And others are people who... Like our, my current CEO and our former CEO, um, Jack Salzweedle, was a person who, whose curiosity about my experience in life, which was decidedly different from his, he grew up in Wisconsin, small town. He worked for American Family, one company his entire career. His father was an agent for American Family, and he ends up, although he said he wasn't going to, working for the company, eventually becoming the CEO. And my life is much different than his. And this curiosity about how my lived experience was different from his and how our two experiences together could perhaps create um, other sparks, since we're here with you, um, other sparks of inspiration that would allow us to move differently as an insurance company and create our own um, future versus just accept that we believe insurance to be one-way, regulated, boring, not inclusive, we could create our own. So he was one of my, is one of my favorite mentors until this day, along with, I work for Bill now, who is a quiet, confident leader who um, is very keen on not necessarily doling out the advice, um, but watching how the room is moving and noticing who's not in the room and who's not participating. Because part of mentorship and sponsorship, and I'd like to say allyship is the next level and the next level after that it's co-conspirators, so how can we create something together? Yeah. And we're all going after it the same way. How do we notice who's not in the room 
and whose presence is missing and therefore prevents us the opportunity from coming up with the best solution for not just ourselves, but our customers and the communities that we get to serve. For me, I get incredible. If I could, I would take more mentor, mentees or mentee relationships, but it's so, it takes a lot of time. So I'm trying to figure out how to do it in group to some degree, but I get inspired by the next generation of folks coming behind. Their level of lack of fear is inspiring. Mm -hmm. Their capacity to know what they believe in and to hold themselves and others accountable to it is beyond inspiring. And I think we learn such a great deal from knowing what they've seen from us in terms of what we've done with the world thus far and what they want to do with it next. Mm -hmm. And I think giving them an added level of um, insight without dampening that sort of um, I am next and hear me roar and I'm not taking any excuses for why we cannot do what is fully capable from the human, from human capacity, I think is even more inspiring. Yeah. And I love that part about reverse mentorship, that yeah. you can learn as much as, as they, they gain. There, there's words of, of wisdom that you can provide, but there's this, that fearlessness and, and there's those nuggets that go both directions. Yeah. Very powerful. So um, in your time at American Family, uh, you've seen incredible growth, not only in your career, but in the company. Sure. Uh, it, I, you know, I think that the revenue of the company has nearly doubled in that amount of time. Sure. Kudos. I mean, like, what, what an, uh, an amazing journey. Uh, if you could just give us a couple of um, nuggets, you know, there's probably some catalytic moments during the last 13 years that probably really helped shape you and put you in the position to be president of, of the company. What, what are some of those, those big Well, I never moments? imagined I would be president of the company, so I can't speak to that. But I can speak <laughs> to the um, defining moments that the company has been on and how, as an individual, hopefully contributing to that overall vision, you end up in a different place than you intended to. So I came to American Family as a marketer and as a person there to help craft a brand and to help bring to uh, market um, something that the consumer can hang on to. So the first part of that transformation, I would say, is this consumer mindset. And so no matter what business you're in, and insurance, I think, has always seen itself or had always seen itself as a regulated business and um, a passively involved product, and therefore the emphasis on knowing and understanding exactly what value you provide to the consumer versus what is your product, I think it's a, is a cataclysmic moment for the category in general and definitely for American family. So this move toward customer-driven versus service-driven or mm-hmm. internally focused was in, in, impactful for us. The second one is defining the vision and the, and the purpose of the company. Purpose is a big topic right now. Um, but the vision that what are we trying to achieve and to define it in terms of the people we're trying to serve. And we all know that now we serve the consumer, we serve the communities that we are a part of and fortunate enough to be, and I think we also serve our employees in that sort of ecosystem of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to redefine how do we see our values and our services versus what product do I provide, so yes, we have auto insurance and home insurance and life insurance and commercial insurance and a number of different motorcycle, whatever you want, we probably have some access to it. But we also, all of those things are really 
tools that we have to help you, the consumer, live out your wildest dreams, whether they are personal um, or professional or even large dreams larger than yourself. And I think that most of us have the, our biggest dreams are the ones that are larger for ourselves. And then the other one is understanding the marketplace in such a nuanced way that you know that you have to change before the customer change and change with the consumer and look at new lines of business, new ways of going to market, and that the world is not standing still. And we now know it's moving even faster than any of us could imagine. Mm -hmm. All of those things line up to be a foundation for the leaders who sort of saw that and a person like me being willing to jump in and say, I am inspired by that. I'm jumping in with mm -hmm. both feet, and I want to help make it to be a reality. I think it's how we get from for more than doubling our growth, and not just in the companies we've acquired and given them wings to grow, but from the core business that's nearly, that's five years out from being a 100-year-old company. So, um, and, and not many companies can say they make it to 100 years old. So sure. I think that part of, so I think that part of that is that that journey of reinvigorating yourself, reimagining yourself, mm -hmm. recasting yourself is part of the life cycle of every business. So I would say that most companies are not the same as they were 100 years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And it takes leadership, it takes vision, and it takes the willing hearts and minds of the people who choose to give their talents to you in order to get that done. And, and we've been fortunate to have all of those things and be able to use that as a regenerative force to help the company continue to grow and do what we uh, do best, which is to take care of the customers in their uh, most trying moments of need. Um, on that, maybe you can elaborate a bit on the, the DREAM initiative and what you're doing there, um, the impact it's, it's having beyond the walls of, of American Family, and kind of give us the background of that. And I can't take a lot. So we launched the Dreams campaign and the brand positioning in 2012. And it has grown, morphed, become sort of the fabric of key parts of our organization, and I'm sure will continue to morph. <clears throat> but I think the last several years allowed that um, vision around what, do, what are customers getting out of us versus what do we provide, mm -hmm. I think has been transformative for the company and ways beyond product. Um, as an example, I think that because of our focus on consumers, I think we were able to face the crises that we've faced over the last three years in a much different manner mm -hmm. than we might have before. So part of the DREAMS initiatives have gone from how we speak about ourselves, how we know ourselves to be, to who we are in the communities that we serve. Mm -hmm. And so Dreams now is not just about our product, but it's also about how we serve the communities. Mm -hmm. We have a Dreams Foundation that was created in that process. Um, we've launched a charitable golf outing in conjunction with Steve Stricker um, that allows us to raise incredible additional dollars to support the Children's Hospital there and other charities within the Madison, Wisconsin or larger Wisconsin area. And we've launched even recently one of the things that um, one of our, my teammates has done so beautifully as part of our Institute for Corporate and Social Impact, which was born out of the DREAMS initiative as well, um, is this desire that you don't just give people fish, 
but you teach them to fish for themselves. Mm -hmm. And part of the work that they're doing is looking at key pillars of how we want to serve people and how people need services, and how do we invest in that? How do we empower that? But one of my uh, teammates, her name is Naira Jordan, um, works on an initiative that's called Fair Chance Hiring, which is about the fact that in the pursuit of dreams, some people are sort of taken off the table because they can't be employed because they were formerly involved in uh, or incarcerated. So they've been involved with the justice system. She's working on an initiative that actually takes that off the table and allows people who have been through the justice system, have re um, sort of skilled themselves, they have skills that people need, i.e. IT skills, mm -hmm. and allow those people to apply for jobs just like anybody else in our organization without anybody knowing that they've been in the criminal mm. justice system. And they've done phenomenally well. And there's like almost a waiting list. People are asking for more of those people because they are dedicated, they are committed, they are well-trained, and they are making a difference and an impact. So ultimately, what we're able to do is allow everybody to bring their full selves to work as part of this notion that it is not just about um, the product you serve, which is really important, but that product gives us the capacity to serve our communities different, to bring different types of employees into an inclusive environment, to allow ourselves to thrive and continue to give back in the way that um, our earlier generations of leaders have given to us. That's awesome. I, I have two questions coming out of what you, what you just talked about. One around uh, criminal justice and in doing what you did with your your colleague, what barriers did you have to remove or stigma within the organization for you to be able to put that kind of program in place? You know, I was one of the biggest stigmas to okay. begin with. Let me just be honest about that. Um, my, at the time, our CEO said, I think we need to take on mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And I said, I agree, because I agreed with him. Mm -hmm. But I said, let's call it economic opportunity for all because I don't want to talk about mass incarceration with our brand, mm -hmm. because we've done a great job of building this brand. And he kind of nodded at me and then kept moving in his direction. <laughs> but that's why he was... I always said, you're the chief brand officer. You can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> but my job as the marketer is to tell you what the risks are. And, and we've been very deliberate. So you've got internal people who are concerned about what are you doing. I was one of them, mm -hmm. not necessarily about the people, but about where are we taking this brand and where are we putting it, and I don't want to put it in harm's way because I care so deeply about the company. But really, what, I don't think we had much internal barriers to, that I have been involved with because if you do it well, mm -hmm. you do not put those people who are formally involved in that system in a situation where their past defines them. Mm -hmm. You give them an opportunity to stand on level ground with everybody else and to compete. Mm -hmm. So you're not opening a door that they are not entitled to go through. Mm. They are entitled to go through because they have the skills. They've put in the time, the effort, and the energy and can prove it side by side. But so much of economic opportunity for formerly, uh, people formerly involved with the justice system and also people of color in some instances as you walk into a room and just the package that you're in may actually take you off the table when you might be the best person for the job. So our, our goal is to make the playing field level, to give them an opportunity to shine. And if they shine, good for them and good for us. If not, at least we gave them the shot. At least they had the opportunity and they can learn from it and we can too. That's great. I, lo I love the program. Do you envision that more 
corporations are going to start putting that type of program in place? <clears throat> I think the last time I knew the number, you probably know it better because you guys are on top of all the data. I think unemployment right now is at 4% or something like that, 6%, depending on where you are and which number you're going to go. Often it's different for different segments of our, uh, of our population. And yet the number of job openings, specifically in areas that you can train and retrain people in, is massive right now. Mm-hmm. And so with, the, with COVID being what it is, um, immigration being what it is, war being yeah. what it is, where are you going to find these people? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how do you find the people who will be most impacted by the opportunity that you're putting in, yeah. in their hand? So I would hope that we don't see it as a, a problem to solve, but as an opportunity exactly. for all of us. Yeah, I love that. I love it. So, you know, probably, I guess it was last summer, we launched a report called The Equity Effect. Mm-hmm. We looked at all different aspects of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I know you're working on many things within the walls of America family. And one of the questions that we ask many leaders is, how do you move those concepts of DNI into the fabric of the organization? So you think about it in every decision you make, as opposed to an initiative that might be siloed on the sideline. Yeah. And I, I'm interested in, in how you've done, handled that in the American family or advice you have, you know, as you're on this journey. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it cannot be a, the side hustle of somebody. Yeah. It has to be somebody's full-time job. And that person's full-time job, full-time job is to move it into the fabric of the company. Mm-hmm. One way to do it is to measure, because mm-hmm. what gets measured gets done. And I don't mean measure from a quota system or anything like that, but measure the things that we said would make a difference. If we believe it will make a difference for us to have open dialogue and discussion about the different lived experiences of people who may be from uh, different lifestyles, who may be from different races, backgrounds, experiences, and we believe that's important, then let's measure how we're doing that. Um, If we believe it's important for us to have representation um, across our ecosystem of different levels of talent, then let's measure that. Mm -hmm. If we believe that it matters that people need to be able to be promoted from within, let's measure that as well. And then let's make it part of the normal business discussion. So we have um, an acronym that we use inside of our company that tells us where we are trying to get by 2024. That's the end of a five-year period that started some time ago. Mm -hmm. And it is 52X and 98. Most companies, and I'll explain what that means, Mm -hmm. but most companies believe that are able to spout, I want to achieve this much revenue. I want to achieve this much in terms of profit. We put 50, which means increase our diversity 50% at the front of our our acronym. Hmm. So we're going to grow our diversity by 50% of our team. Mm -hmm. We're going to grow 2x at the rate of the industry. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to do that with a combined ratio of 98, which speaks to our profitability. Hmm. So, But it starts with people. Yeah. People fuel growth, and smart people working together actually fuel profitability mm-hmm. as well. So we put it right in how yeah, in our that. acronym, and then it's on everybody's, at least the leadership. It's on your, it's on your scorecard, just mm-hmm. like everything else. I like the simplicity of that yeah. too. And if you put diversity, you know, along with revenue growth, profitability, it's it's what makes the business tick, and it's the business case for. Uh, 
diversity being in the fabric and it driving the growth of the business. Yeah, and one most people say that it's a means to getting the growth. Mm-hmm. And I think there, it's two ways to think about it, and it, they're both probably right. But if I say that I don't have to remember that at the beginning of this, we start with people, and that group of people needs to be 50% more diverse than we were when we started this, this journey, um, I think that that makes it much more tangible and, and not as easy to forget. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's easy to forget, it does become the thing that's in a department somewhere versus into the fabric of the company. And so one of my proudest moments for American Family recently, and there's a lot of them, is during Black History Month, um, they asked me to be our keynote speaker, which is kind of funny because I talk to them all the time, so I'm not <laughs> sure what they thought they were going to learn different, but I appreciated the opportunity and to speak about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it was for the African-American uh, resource group. Mm-hmm. And it was a Zoom thing. I was in my office because, you know, we can't really, at that time, we weren't getting together as much as we are trying to do now. And then you start to look in the comments because I like to use Zoom actively. I really don't like Zoom where there's no comments open so I can <laughs> see what people are talking about. And I'll ask people to respond. And then you see who's in the comments. And more than half of the people attending our African-American Black History Month keynote event were not African-American. Mm-hmm. That I was very proud of. That's great. And I think it's good not just for me as the person speaking, but for the other leaders who were there as African-Americans to see they are not in their journey alone. They are there with their friends and their coworkers who don't look like them, but are committed to this notion that we are going to be an inclusive culture and that we care about each other, um, even though our lived experiences might be seen from different angles. I love that. It's creating allyship and bringing people along yeah. the journey. Let me, let me ask you a more personal question. I mean, to arrive where you have in your career along the way that's inevitable um, that you have experienced racism, gender discrimination, potentially bullying along the way, um, would you be willing to talk about sure. how you've navigated that? Because I think there's so many people out there that uh, admire everything that you've accomplished, but also know that it's difficult to get there. Um, do you have words of wisdom on, sure. on what you've learned along the way? Yeah, I, I've learned a lot along the way, and I try um, very hard to sort of internalize things and then move through them, mm-hmm. not to allow them to fester and sort of grow holes, I think, in your soul. So um, from a life experience standpoint, I specifically remember the moment I knew that what I was being taught by my very strong family, my great teachers, I went to a, I went to a school up until eighth grade. All of my teachers were African-American, yeah. and most of my classmates were African-American. This was in Chicago? That's in Chicago, okay. south side of Chicago, District 1. 47, I believe it is, trying to remember. Um, but um, those people taught me a different experience than what most people lived as African Americans. They taught me about history differently. I probably know more black history than anybody in this room. I'd be able to put a test to people. We want to have a, we're going to have a test later. Um, so maybe I probably know a little bit more because we, we had teachers who taught you your history taught you the struggle, taught you what people had been through, and made you feel incredibly responsible to carry this mantle of race on your shoulders and on your skin. Mm -hmm. 
And, and then I went to my parents divorced and I ended up in a different school district in theory better because it was it was not diverse at all. Um, different district. I went from being one of many or all to being the only, mm-hmm. especially in the higher um, skilled classes. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember the first time somebody asked me to prove my in- intellect. Mm-hmm. So the teachers before me assumed that I was capable and, and I had test scores to prove it. The, the school I walked into for high school assumed that I wasn't in spite of the test scores that I gave them. Um, even though it's the same standardized test you give these people, and I tested out of high school a long time ago. I really don't know why I'm here, in my opinion. I was like, I should be able to just go to college, Mom. And she was like, just get, skip this all get together. out of the car and go to school. But, <laughs> but so I distinctly remember that. And I also remember the first time being in that school system when um, someone specifically attacked me because of race. I was doing something in a summer program, and, and a store owner you know, sort of lured us in that he was going to participate in this donation that we were trying to uh, get for this fundraiser we were doing. And then after he put it in our hands, he snatched it back and told us he was going to put us all in a box. And it was me and another girl who happened to be Asian-American, put us all in a box and ship us back to Africa where we okay. came from, yada, yada, yada. And I remember that she cried and, and screamed and ran out. And I stood with the dignity that I was told to, to, that was my right as an African-American girl, but I couldn't move. I couldn't. So a, literally a nun from the school that I was in the summer program with had to come in and sort of pull me out of that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I grow up, I say that to first say that when you then go into the work world and you see these signs, you have sort of two choices. Um, and to me, the most racist thing that you can face, um, aside from the person who is in your face and telling you what you are not, and that you don't belong here, which I think that can pass, and you sort of just have to, you know, get out of that moment and make sure nobody gets hurt. And um, for me, you just kind of ignore them. But these young people don't do that, and I really <laughs> respect them for that. But, but you just kind of move on. To me, the most uh, racist thing you can do to me is to contest my authority. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that is the subtle racism that you have in corporate America that where someone believes because you are what you are, I don't have to respect the fact that you sit in this role and the company has entrusted you to do this particular thing. Um, I, up until George Floyd, and perhaps a little bit before that, and I would say before that because um, prior to George Floyd, there was a report published that said that Madison, Wisconsin was the worst place in America to raise an African-American boy. Which is shocking because you got Mississippi, mm-hmm. you got South Florida. That, that is shocking. You know, you got Detroit, you got some, you got more urban areas where you're known for the problem. But here's Wisconsin, one of the best places to live. People like to move there, best schools, public schools, um, some of the best public schools in the country. And you publish a report that says this county, the seat of the government, is the worst place to, to raise an African American boy. And my CEO at the time asked me what I thought about the report. And, you know, I gave him a marketing answer, like, you know, I can do some research, find some people like Sparks and Honey, and help you to understand why this is the case. And he goes, no, no, what do you think about the report as an African-American parent? Which was the first time anybody asked me to bring my experience into an answer. And I said, well, it probably means at some point I'm going to have to leave Madison, Wisconsin, because even though I have means 
And even though we have great schools, and I can send him to a private school, and I can surround him with a family that honors the fact that um, he is just as worthy as other people to be in a room, to be in a place, and, and that he's capable, and, and perhaps even beyond capable I am his mother, <laughs> I will probably have to move so that he can have a different experience, because this data says it doesn't matter um, what your economic capacity is. This is a bad place to be. Hmm. And he said, then we must change it. Hmm. So we started working on a lot of things that made us um, very able to sort of deal with the George Floyd situation mm -hmm. than I would say other companies might have been. So in that moment of George Floyd, it became um, imperative for me to change my paradigm of sort of just moving through it. You sort of put on this um, mask. There's a great Langston Hughes poem, I think, that says, I wear the mask. Um, or we wear the mask, which is about the African-American experience, to take off the mask and say, this is how we experience this life, this American dream. And these are all the things that we don't talk about and we've been taught not to talk about, that these young folks marching in streets and stuff are telling you you better pay attention to because they are going to impact all of us. And I think the more that you can actually bring your lived experience to the, to the fore, it, the better it shapes you to be able to deal with the fact that I am experiencing a subtle form of racism here when people believe that they need to give your plan to somebody else to make sure that your plan is right, even though you're the person who are responsible for making this particular decision. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to know why you're there before you decide, do I want to take you down for the fact that you are micro-aggressing me? Mm -hmm. Or do I want to try to teach you something? And if you take it, you take it. If you don't, you don't. We move on. Mm -hmm. Because I think we serve at a higher... I personally believe we are at a moment where all of us are being required to serve at a higher purpose. Yeah. So I don't, I don't take a lot of issue. Uh, well, I take issue, I would say. I don't take a lot of time to dwell in the the muck of what it feels like mm -hmm. to be um, sort of looked over, um, thought to be different than you are, challenged in the way that you wouldn't challenge anybody else. I try not to de deal in the ugliness mm -hmm. um, as much as I deal in the opportunity to still prove that just like dust, I rise. <laughs> so love it. Teresa, thank you so much for being open and vulnerable and, and sharing that. I mean, I think it's such an important message to, to plant those seeds. You know, I think about it even in the work we do from a corporate standpoint. You will have lots of people who uh, see the truths or what's happening, and you have to kind of chip away at that. And I think that, you know, taking that approach that you may have someone in front of you who is seeing the world in a way completely um, different than, than where they should or where you do, taking them on that journey. And I think it's, it's so helpful. And I think you sharing your story is so inspiring to, 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 to everyone that's listening today. Um, I want to ask you another question about trust. And in the equity uh, analysis that we did, we also looked at the shifting dynamics around trust and really the role of corporation in uh, taking on challenges that corporations hadn't traditionally taken on. I mean, sometimes that is social justice, sometimes that's policy debate, sometimes that is taking on government, you know, get, you know, weaving in and out of these things. And 
part of what the research showed, and you've kind of hit on this a few times today, is that the younger generation expects it, and in some ways trusts corporations more than government to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, in your role um, as a leader at American Family, how you're navigating those complexities? Yeah, and it's not just me, but it's a whole leadership team. I, so first off, I, I think that corporations have been taking on social issues, not as on the forefront as we are today, for many years. That's why there's names of companies on hospitals, mm -hmm. you know, because they are sewing into those respective communities. But I do think there's been a massive shift in the level of trust of government, governmental institutions. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we come back from it, in my opinion. I, I really hope we come back from it. But I would say in the meantime... The younger folks have basically said, I can't trust these people to do it. So I'm laying it right here at your feet, big corporation, mm -hmm. where I have lots of Im impact and influence. You would think we have impact and influence on the government. It comes around every, every couple of years when you have to go vote. But you have daily influence mm -hmm. on a corporation because you vote every day with your dollars. Mm -hmm. And you vote every day with your time and your talent when you decide, I'm going to work here and not there because of some pillar of belief or something that they're, um, that they are um, either for or against. So I, I think that we're navigating it very um, purposefully by getting clear on what it is we do want to support. What do we believe in? What has this company always been doing? So I think the critical thing for most companies is to figure out not what am I against, but what am I for? Mm -hmm. And if I am for... Um, economic opportunity for all, um, if I am for fair chance hiring, if I am for um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that doesn't mean that I am standing against something. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't have to worry about the people that are out there to tell you that you're out of alignment with their view of the world when it's really about not supporting something versus supporting um, moving us all forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been critical for us, is that we don't need to jump into every fray or fight, but let's get clear on what we believe, and let's not back down when somebody sort of pushes up against you to say, you know, why is this person your brand ambassador? Because their view on this is that. We're also for freedom of speech, because yeah. we live in this great country. So 100%. I wanted to wear my shirt that's a, a message to Florida, gay, gay, gay. <laughs> <laughs> coming, coming off the don't say gay um, thing in, in, in Florida. And I, when I think about that, I mean, clearly diversity is woven into the ecosystem of a company like Disney. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. But in and this yes. case, I think there's a, a and th this is kind of to what you're saying, there's, there's a, there was such an upheaval of employee activism with the LGBTQ community because there was, um, it was the speed at which they took that on um, and really stood up for that group. And I think that, that, that you know, there's um, an expectation there that wasn't met in this particular case. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that the younger generations and I think society at large are looking for us to weigh in um, almost immediately, mm -hmm. you know, on, on all of this stuff. And, I've, and I do think that Disney sort of caught themselves, and I love Disney, I think the world of the brand, I think the world of the leadership, I think the world of people who got the company to where they are today. But um, what we were learning is that literally um, you have to move at the space, space, pace of the marketplace. And I think to some of this stuff, 
especially because some of these issues are becoming lightning rod issues for just social discussion, not true impact. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about Florida. I mean, or I probably shouldn't because that's a political discussion. But, <laughs> but in all of these places where people want to say, I sent us there a little <laughs> bit. Sorry, <laughs> don't do this and don't do that. Um, what is the result of the actions that they're taking? Mm -hmm. Is life changing in Florida for for those people? Um, yes, because you've now made somebody a target. Yeah. But nothing is changing in the government necessarily. So these are things that people are doing, in my opinion. That to me, they're simply a waste a waste of time and a waste of our human intellect to sort of talk about them, um, not necessarily after the fact, but like to bring these things into the marketplace because they are more for political fodder than they are for actual action that, that will influence somebody's life. Whose life is hurt because somebody in Florida says gay? Nobody's probably, <laughs> you know? So... Um... Let's move to a lightning round, and let me give you a little background on this. So this is something that we do sometimes with some of our, our guests. Um, very recently, some of us uh, spent some time in California at, at a conference that is about the future of humanity. And it, at, it was people, artificial intelligence experts, uh, you know, looking at quantum computing, brain health, sleep, all those things that we were talking about before. So I'm going to give you a couple of topics that, that bubbled up during this session. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in any thoughts you have on, on the topics for the impact it could have on humanity. But also I'm interested in just on, on your category because I think sure. there's some real relevance. So one uh, fascinating uh, presentation we saw was around brain health and sleep. And uh, this particular scientist was talking about the ability for someone to have a very bad night's sleep, someone else to have a very good night's sleep, and for us to be able to transplant the benefits of having a good night's sleep into someone else. I, I, like, mind-blowing. I was like, that, that, that's, that's fascinating. The, the idea that we can live something and then extract it from one person to another and feel exactly the same benefits, or the ability to go in and manipulate um, uh, dreams by uh, introducing certain smells or certain things where they could actually say, we want this person to dream X, and we can get them to dream X by introducing things that are part of their lived experiences. So I put that out there <laughs> to see if you have thoughts on because I, I, could, I could think of when I, when I, uh, about uh, implications on the category in the sure. area. So first off, so you're telling me that at some date in the future, my husband's going to be able to roll over and give me the benefit of his good night's sleep because he always gets his sleep. And I Those full eight hours, you know. And I can give him the lack of benefit of feeling like what it feels like to sleep on four hours sleep. That's a, that might be So that's kind of mind-blowing. So You're like the perfect marriage. <laughs> right, we, we, exactly. <laughs> Just bump heads in the morning and I get some of his, he gets some of mine. So, um, so I've, I have seen some of this data coming that says that in the future we'll be able to do, like, live a real swan song if you watch that mm -hmm. movie. Um, so for the category, I think it's important to note that from a life insurance perspective, from a health insurance perspective, we don't do health insurance, but having it has some adjacency to what we do, auto, home, auto in all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I, it's an intriguing thought mm -hmm. to think about what type of biodata, if the consumer is willing to share it with you, is available in the future to help us um, accurately price their risk and give them a set of services that puts them in the best position to um, 
take care of themselves or yeah. to uh, for us to be able to restore them if we have to restore them. Yeah. So it's an intriguing thing. It is also an intriguing thing for new categories of risk, right? Because um, I, I would submit to you that the world is much more risky than the sets of things that we, pro that we protect now. Mm -hmm. Not we, American family, but we, the category, and we, what the general population knows. So we know to protect our auto, our home, our things, our life, our business. But there's a no whole other category of risk that I think the future opens up doors for an insurance company or a company uh, in our category to think about how do you provide even more fulsome service for the people that you're ser serving. I think the other issue is the data. Mm -hmm. um, so we spend a lot of time in insurance, mining data, learning from data to, or in order to give the customer what they need and deserve in terms of the protection that they're seeking. seeking. But more and more, this conversation around data is about who has access to that data and who owns that data. So in that example of me and my husband bumping heads <laughs> together in the morning, and does my car then know, um, as my phone sort of knows, well, my car actually knows today. It's measuring your sleep. Yeah, it's measuring your sleep, and, and none of that's being transmitted into the car, although I've learned recently that some of that stuff that's coming off your phone is actually stored in the car. But my car knows when it thinks it knows by what I'm doing in the car if I'm alert. Like every now and again, it'll give me a warning. Mm -hmm. It's normally because I'm, you know, got, don't have my hands in the right place for a number of seconds where it starts beeping at Sip me. Sip coffee. Like, Driver alert, take some coffee. And I was mm -hmm. like, I'm awake, you know. But, <laughs> you know, so, but, so the question is, if the car knows it and the phone knows it or some other device, I've seen these rings now, mm -hmm. knows it, how... Who owns it, mm -hmm. and how, if at all, does it get used by any company in order to provide better services? Yeah. And in between that equation, speaking of government, is this thing called government, because insurance is a state-regulated product. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done between now and then, um, between government and companies, and I think consumers and, and companies like your own, to say what has to be true when that occurs in order to make that the best case scenario for the consumer mm -hmm. and also a symbiotic relationship for the consumer. Yeah, I love so. that. We, we tackled in our Precision Consumer 2030, like genomics and microbiome and all of this precision data and ownership and, and privacy and and. And there's huge implications for your category. I'll ask one more, one more question. So one, one of the things that we talked some about at the uh, Future of Humanity conference was the metaverse. It's everywhere right now. But something that was said there um, kind of stuck with me. Because many times we talk about the metaverse and we talk about gaming and thinking about an Oculus and going in and, and these game-like experiences. And this individual who is a neuroscientist said, really, the ultimate metaverse is more like our dreams. That dream that you have and you wake up and all of a sudden you feel like it really happened, that you were so many different things in that dream, mm -hmm. that, that you went frictionlessly. He goes, when we have cracked how to make the metaverse like a dream state, we have an amazing metaverse, you know, on our hands. Right. And I wonder in your category, I think there's also incredible implications for what could be done and these new things that you could ensure in the metaverse. Yeah. Well, I, I've been, I've jokingly had a conversation with my 
uh, chief strategy and technology officer, it's one gentleman serves in that role, about should we be making an insurance product for the metaverse right now? Because mm -hmm. people are spending boatloads of money mm -hmm. in the metaverse, but of course you have to have data to know whether or not it, anything is in there is insurable and like what could happen in there and all this other and, and that all the other stuff. So I would agree with you that the ultimate metaverse is the brain. I would also say that what the metaverse is trying to achieve, we're almost there without the device to some degree, mm -hmm. because ultimately you want to be able to go into, we have the data rather. So I think our iPhone um, and the Apple ecosystem around you, not mm -hmm. to float Apple's boat, <laughs> um, but, but not to give them that credit, but I, I do trust them with my privacy personally. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the ecosystem that they build around me is worth me giving them more and more data. And up until like a couple of weeks ago, I wouldn't give them my health data. Mm. But then I was like, I need to start monitoring my blood pressure because somebody, I read a report that said that yeah. blood pressure was a big deal for executives. And then I went and took my blood pressure and it was not 110 over 60, which is what I thought my number was <laughs> and had always been. And I'm not going to share what the number was. But then I all of a sudden was interested in my health app on my, on my Apple watch and the other stuff that comes along with yeah. it. So now they have my health data too, which, you know, mm -hmm. I'm giving more and more of myself to them. But I would agree that there is incredible opportunity from a data standpoint and also from what else can you protect. I think the opportunity for insurance companies is to sit in the driver's seat of actually protecting the data. Mm. And it's not anything that we're thinking about as a broad industry right now because it's so wrought with a lot of things that have to be yeah. solved. But I think ultimately, who do you trust to help keep your data yeah. safe? Who owns it? And, and, and how I would do you submit to you the customer actually should own it. Mm -hmm. We just don't have a company or an ecosystem that has made that possible yeah. and have figured out what price would, are you willing to pay versus me willing to pay in order to have control of my data and release it to the people I want to release it to. I think the ultimate opportunity for this category is to figure that out because I'd like to sit side by side with my customer and say, not only can I protect your home, your whatever, and this is just me talking, not American family, but I would like to sit side by side with us and your say, home. how do we figure out how to help the customer protect their data? Yeah, I love that. I, th I think there's huge Otherwise, opportunity. Otherwise, Apple's going to win that. Yes. Yeah, is it the corporation Which or is it the individual? You know, and I think the individual who's producing all the data, that they should own the data and then you have to protect it. Yep. And decide Fantastic. who they want to release it to. I might be able to give want to give my doctor all my data or give Apple all my data and I don't want to give somebody over here, whoever it is, I don't want to I only want to give you what you need to know in this moment and I want it to be gone after you figure out whatever it is you need to figure out with my data to give me a price or, or some service. And then I want to be done with you. But you over here, I trust you to keep it safe, to guard yeah. it and protect it and I'm willing to pay a price for that. Absolutely. Talisa, thank you so much. You. What an incredible discussion. Thank you. It was amazing. I want to thank our uh, in-studio audience, our viewers from around the globe, and we will be back here tomorrow uh, with our regular cultural briefing. And until tomorrow, consider yourself brief.